Welcome, everybody. We're glad that you're here. If you would take your Bibles with me and turn to John 19. And if you need a Bible in the back, there is a shelf. It's got plenty of them. If you need one, just raise your hand. We'll make sure that we get it to you. But we definitely want you to have a a copy of the Scriptures. Kenny, we got a couple of hands up. Do you mind? Thanks. Thank you, guys. Who else? Okay. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please take that one home. That is our Resurrection Sunday gift to you. It's good. We're in John 19, New Testament, fourth book. John 19. Every first Sunday of the month, we celebrate the return of the Lord Jesus. And we do that by commemorating his death and his resurrection. Now, because we're using these, and they tend to be fickle and troublesome, everybody that's on the front row has these turned upside down on top of their seats. But if you're sitting behind somebody, if you'll look down in the little basket that's under there that you normally put a hymnal or something, you'll have a little round circle that'll have one of these sitting in there. Uh, We'll ask that you hold on to your trash until afterwards, and then we can just leave it behind. We'll make sure that it gets cleaned up. Uh, But I want to start in John 19 because I want us to get a clear view of what's going on before we jump into chapter 20 for what we're going to look at today. We're going to start in verse 14 for this. So John chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 14. It says, Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king, this is Pilate, bringing Jesus out, mocking him in front of everyone. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now this is a startling statement. Because the chief priests are the religious know-it-alls. And their conclusion is, if we have a king at all, it's a political one. Now, that's the mark of ignorance. Verse 16, so then they handed him over to be crucified. And what has always blown my mind is that if you talk about the crucifixion, we really make a long, drawn-out situation of it. We understand that he hung on the cross for six hours. We understand that it was agonizing. We've even gone as far as to have medical doctors create reports to show what happens to a body when it's shutting down from crucifixion, what kind of agony takes place. And you can see all that stuff. But what's interesting is, is that right here, it's just a sentence. It's just a sentence. So then they handed him over to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. And there they crucified him. Inside the camp or outside the camp? We'll see if you remember from last week. Outside, very good, very good. That makes me feel so, I'm, all pressure's off now. 
Let's do it. They crucified him and with him, two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And I'll be honest with you, I think that's prophetic. I think that's God using a pagan to speak the truth. Amazing. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. Thus it was fulfilled in the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, or Mary from Maldaga, I think is how you say it, or Magdala. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and just so you know, that's John's designation for himself in this gospel. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, pay attention, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture. Mark that. All things have been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And a lot of people say, well, he did that because the pain was so excruciating. That doesn't seem to be the case because at an earlier time when he could have, he denied the wine. They could have used it as an anesthetic, and he didn't want that. But I think what he did here was he was clearing his throat so he could speak clearly. In verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. That word testelestai means paid in full, that it's done. It's the happy feeling you get when you no longer have to make a car payment, only times a million. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And I think this is important for us to understand. Nobody took Jesus's life from him. He willingly gave it up. He decided to lay down his life. He could easily take it up again. Verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was the high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. In other words, they were so concerned about getting cleaned up so they could have a big feast that they wanted to make sure and kill people quicker. This did not take place in America, regardless of what you're thinking. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man 
and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And actually, what's interesting is, if you look at the grammatical construction there, I'm pretty sure that it's actually that water and blood came out as the correct grammatical order. I don't know if you guys remember that. The reason is because the heart is encased in a fluid-like sac called the pericardium. And so that's what was pierced first before it ever hit the organ of the heart. Water came out and then blood. So moving on here, verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass, here it is again, to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What you have in front of you, as strange as it may be in our age, is a representation. If you will take back the plastic at the top, not the foil part, but the plastic, this wafer here is represented of his body. Now, if you're a gluten-free person, raise your hand real quick. Art is small and speedy. He will be able to get around to you. There are some people who have deified this. There's some people who have looked at this and they said, you know what, there's, there's something special that happens to me when I take it. There's some sort of transformation or some difference that moves over me. I don't want to burst your bubble this morning, but I'll go ahead and tell you that's not true. This right here is a somewhat edible. I'm not even for sure what it is. Does anybody know what this is? Styrofoam? Somewhat edible styrofoam. So you could take the leftovers and use packing peanuts in case you need to Amazon Prime anything to somebody, right? But what it represents is so much more. What it represents is invaluable. What it represents is a picture of perfection. It's incredible to me to think that somebody would die for me. And they didn't just die for me like, well, I guess nobody else is going to do it, so I'm going to throw myself in front of the train. It's not that. 
It's somebody that when they chose to die, they died perfectly. They made sure that no stone was left unturned. Whenever we see that little catchphrase to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill the scriptures, it's Jesus making a checklist saying, I know God's word. And I know that I'm here to fulfill God's word. And I'm going to make sure that every bit of it up until the point of me giving my last breath is going to be checked off so that when people look at the Old Testament and they check it with what I've done in my earthly life in the New Testament, they're going to raise their hands and they're going to go, there's no contradiction. For him to fail in one of these points would make us look at the Bible and say, it's not true. You can't trust any of it. But instead, what does he do? Carefully, meticulously, so those are type A qualities, right? Lovingly and graciously, those type B qualities, covers a whole spectrum. He gets the job done perfectly. It is finished. Do you know what that means? It is finished. That means any time that we try to serve him out of guilt, any time that we think we need to pay God back for something, we're not thinking according to the scriptures. The crucifixion is grace. And that means never deserve it, and yet all has been freely provided for you, and it expects nothing in return. Some people get a little weird about that last part, but it's true. What could you do to make the crucifixion of Jesus more? Nothing. And so what we do is, we take this and we say, thank you, Jesus. And I do this to remember the fact that I don't need to do anything. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, something very common. I know it wasn't this. But he broke it in front of his disciples. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. So when you come together as a body of people, and you eat of this, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that the cross is always relevant all the time, because every time we make a decision on our own, to serve ourselves, to strike out and do our own thing, to say, I think this might be the best way to handle it, and we didn't bother to pray, and we didn't bother to consult the Lord, we didn't bother to know his word. Instead, we walked forward blind men in ignorance. He wants us to know. This was given for that. This was given for every self-righteousness we make. This was given for every decision that we've ever compromised where we regret waiting. This is it. So we do this in remembrance of him. Not the tricky part where you're wishing you had a napkin. And one of the reasons why we got multicolored carpet. If you were to do a study in the Bible of blood, one of the most remarkable points in Scripture is when Noah comes off the ark. 
Everything around him is dead. The first thing he does when he comes off the ark is he builds an altar to say, thank you, God, for saving me and my family from absolute, total destruction. And at that moment, God institutes the opportunity to eat meat, which isn't the focus of this, but I got to bring it up because I love barbecue so much. But it's interesting, he talks about whenever you're preparing, you have to drain all the blood out of it. And he says, for in the blood is the life. If we have no blood, we have no life. Now, what's interesting about that is we find that life is not just a temporal quality. It's actually something that's eternal and has far-reaching implications. In fact, we're told whenever the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were existing before creation was ever even set into place, that life was with them. And that's life eternal, eternally in the past. This is a symbol. The only thing that I really appreciate about the movie, The Passion of the Christ, was they made him about as bloody as they possibly could. And that seems to be about what it was like to be barely recognizable. I'm not a fan of those movies where you've got one little stream going down his chest. It was so much more than that. What would cause somebody to come to the mental conclusion that I'm going to bleed out for somebody? I mean, that's not just a quick death. Don't we always talk about, well, when I die, I want to go quickly. Don't we do that? I don't want to agonize. I don't want to suffer. If it's going to be one of those situations, then let it be in a crazy car wreck and cool. You can't tell my face because of the glass. It's fine. But I want out quickly. It's a spilling of something like this that makes you realize why he was grieving in the garden so painfully. Why it was so stressful. The anxiety that probably tried to overcome him in thinking about what he had to endure. And you know what's interesting about that? I have no doubt in my mind. Every single person's face who would ever be born, had been born, will be born, live and die on this earth went through his mind at that moment. Jesus died for people because he loves people and because people can't die for themselves. We've talked about this before. How many sins can you die for? One, because you only got one life. But because Jesus was never tainted with sin and because he would rather die than sin, his blood serves as a perfect Perfect payment to not just cover my sin and your sin, but everyone's sin for all time. There's nothing wrong with telling people, Jesus has died for your sins. Isn't that good? And you know what that means? You don't have to. That burden is not on your shoulders. In fact, he did it so that you could be a free person. No fear of guilt, no fear of condemnation, no fear of death. Don't even need to have it. So when he was betrayed, he took this cup as an example in front of all of them, wine. So this is the blood of the new covenant. It's poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink. Now, pop quiz. For as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You proclaim his death until? Until he comes. And that's what we're looking forward to. Amen? Excellent. Children's Church, you're dismissed. Have fun, guys. Amy, are you doing Children's Church today? Amy's got it all going on, so follow her. It's like a Pied Piper running out of here. Hey, Pete, other people needing seats out there? Okay, just want to make sure. If you would, if you look down at your Bibles... You'll notice that we're getting into chapter 20. Chapter 20 is going to be the beginning focus of what we have. Real quick, I want to make sure everybody has the scriptures. Check, check. Okay, just want to make sure this is working. I feel like it was going out. I didn't plan on preaching this at all. And then on Monday, I realized I couldn't preach what I wanted to preach. So I had to preach something else. Because what I wanted to preach just didn't work. The Holy Spirit just lets you know, no, that's always a fun day. And chapter 20 is one of the resurrection accounts. Four of them. Something that I've done to maybe help you. There's some people that are skeptical. Let me just say that real quick. There's some people that look at the four accounts of the situation surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection, they say, well, I see too many variables here. There's a lot of things that are going on. Not everybody's mentioning everything. Therefore, there must be contradictions. Out there on the Welcome Center, right next to the coffee there, I've put about 30 pages out there. Not all 30 pages. They're each one page, but there's 30 copies. Forgive me. You guys are like, it's like you to give me 30 pages of something to read. And what it is, is it goes through and it details... The main crux of what we're going to look at here from verses 1 through 9 of of John 20. But it takes from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it puts all of this together so that it's cohesive and it flows. There's a man named Johnston Cheney that has put together a book called Jesus Christ, The Greatest Life. And what he did was from the Greek, he was able to put together the four Gospels seamlessly from beginning to end and didn't have to take out one word or add one word. And this is a little excerpt of that so you can see. And he's labeled them. He'll put a number one next to a section. That means it came from Matthew. A number two next to a section came from Mark and so on. He does that. So if you're somebody that's skeptical and you're looking for that, that information is freely provided for you. You're more than welcome to look at it. Let's read chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, and then let's go through verse by verse and look at this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, But he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw 
and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Mary Magdalene is there early. She's there early probably for two reasons. Number one, if you research her, there's many Marys in scripture, but if you research her, you find out that she was rescued, she was delivered from seven demons who tormented her. Uh, if, how many people here have seen The Chosen? Okay, and you've seen episode one. At the, ending of, at the end of that first episode, that is a picture of what the healing, her healing, the casting out of the demons looked like in that situation. So chances are, because she'd been delivered from such torment, she immediately had a great affection for Christ. In fact, it's believed everywhere that he went in his traveling ministry, it often mentions the men there, but she was always with them, tagging along, wanting to help, wanting to minister. You find in other situations, it says that her and a group of other ladies were wanting to kind of fill in the gaps, which as everyone knows here, every man needs, right? So every man needs that. What's interesting is that she's there early. She's there early. I mean, she's early. In fact, it's called the fourth watch, which means she's there about 3 a.m. waiting. Now, it's a very strange situation. Why in the world would she be there? Maybe her love compelled her to be there. But everybody remember that we saw the phrases, the day of preparation, the day of preparation. They had to get it done quick. When they took the body of Jesus off the cross, when his body was handed over, There were still Romans that were overseeing everything. We know that because whenever they put the rock in front of the tomb, they sealed it. And they sealed it with the insignia of Caesar. And not only did they seal it, but they put a garrison, a garrison around a dead guy's grave. Why would they do that? What did he tell them was going to happen? He's going to rise again. We'll make sure that doesn't happen. We'll put a whole bunch of soldiers out there to make sure it doesn't happen. Now, soldier or not, a dead guy walks out of a tomb. Are you sticking around? (laughs) Probably not, man. I mean, that's a little much. In fact, we see in the other accounts, they'd fallen over as if dead, and it's not because they saw Jesus come out of the tomb. It's just a simple fact that an angel showed up. So Jesus is times 10 that, times a million that. She comes early, why? Well, because of the preparation, they probably weren't able to fully get the body ready for burial. Now, you'll remember maybe about when Lazarus had died, Jesus heard about it. And it's a really odd situation because he hears about it. Okay, my friend died. But it says he stayed a few days longer. And he stayed a few days longer because he wanted to make sure that Lazarus was good and dead. No. When you die, you die. But there's a superstition that went on in the area of Palestine that somebody had to be dead for at least three days because their spirit just kind of wandered around a little bit and then finally the spirit went away. Maybe that's the superstitious part of it. The practical medical part of it is the fact that on the fourth day, they start to smell bad, that's why. And that's what Jesus wanted to prove here. In fact, I love the King James. Everybody remember that? Lord, he stinketh. Roll back the stone. But Lord, hold on. (laughs) He smells bad. You don't have enough pine cone air fresheners to put around in that place. But he wanted to prove a point. And that's that he had power over death. 
And I guarantee you this, when Lazarus came hopping out of that tomb, they weren't worried about how he smelled. So now you have a situation here where maybe the preparation wasn't able to do. When they pulled him off the cross, they had to wash him first. They had to massage his arms to get all the rigor mortis out of it. So they get him in the position to where they could begin to wrap his body. And if you saw up earlier in in chapter 19, where was it? Verse 39, it was about 100 pounds of stuff they put on him. I mean, Jesus probably weighed about 165 pounds, 170 pounds anyway. But now they're going to wrap his body in, in another 100 pounds. That's my weight. So, give or take a few pounds. Give or take a few pieces of cake. I don't know. So this wasn't something that just, we read it and we quickly go by it. We don't think through what happened. They wrap him in all this stuff in order to prepare him to combat against the stench that would happen. What's interesting is, is the applying of all that stuff is a sign of unbelief. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But having wrapped him in all this, and maybe they weren't able to get everything done, they went ahead and they laid him in the tomb so they could celebrate the Passover celebration. And then Mary's probably there in the morning, and if you remember, her and a few other ladies came. They're not mentioned here, but they are in the other Gospels, and I'll show you how we know that they're there in this Gospel. But they came with spices. Why would they do that? In order to complete the process of preparing his body for burial. See, there was something they didn't totally understand about this either. So it said on the first day of the week, that's why we celebrate Sunday mornings, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, this is no small matter. In fact, in these small little nine verses here, we have at least four proofs that he was raised from the grave. The first one is a stone was moved. When she showed up, it was already gone. We find out later that the angel's the one who moved it. But if you're familiar with how this situation looks, you had in the side of this rock a hewn-out portion in limestone of which they would have a trough or a trench. And the trench would hold this round stone that was flat, kind of like imagine a, a huge heavy quarter put up like this, okay? So it's skinny here, but it's heavy stuff. And what was interesting, when they draw it back, they would draw it up this ramp, and they would have it positioned up top so that someone could easily push it, and the momentum of the ramp would put it down into place, and then they could seal it once it was there. However, to remove it required a few people to get it up this ramp and to get it out of the way. The first thing that she stumbles upon when she's there is There's no door. The rock is gone. And it gives us an inkling about what she can tell just from that viewpoint. Look what it says here. Verse 2, so she ran, she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to him, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they laid him. Everybody see the we? That's That's her and the other ladies. They don't know where they've laid him. But this is the second evidence that we have. From at least outside, when she saw that the rock was gone, when she peered in, the body was missing. The body is gone. Now, if you're somebody who stirred up a lot of trouble all throughout a region, and you kept telling people, 
On the third day, he's going to rise. On the third day, I'm going to rise. And you're letting them know over and over and over. It is to your enemy's advantage that your body stays put. Everybody see that? The only other conclusion you could come to is grave robbers. And those are some strong people. Because they had to get rid of a garrison, they had to break a seal, and they had to move a huge stone up an incline. I don't know what Jesus had in his tomb, but it probably wasn't worth doing all that. So you've got two points of how you know that resurrection took place. And not that the government was trying to pull a fast one. And not that robbers had gotten in there. The stone is moved. The body is gone. Now this leads us to the next part of it. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple, who's that? John went forth. And they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together. And the other disciple, who had a membership at Levita, <laughs> ran ahead faster than Peter, who was still depressed by his denial and had invested in Ben and Jerry's for a couple of days. So he's slower. Today's supposed to be a fun day, guys. Come on. <laughs> we're celebrating the raising of Jesus Christ. So be a happy person. If you want to be sticking the mud, Christian, that church is somewhere else. It's not here. So faster than Peter, and he came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, so he doesn't go in. Very interesting word here. For us in the English, it's just S-A-W. He saw the linen wrappings there, lying there, and he did not go in. This word saw means that he observed, he was able to look in and take note of the place but there was no real comprehension about what was going on. He's just seeing this, 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 but it's not registering. Now, what else you see is the wrapped linen cloths. Everybody see that? Some people believe that this was a cocoon-like situation that was left behind. It was just kind of like his body evaporated out of it and it left the shell. Now that's possible because all the stuff that they put on there, it would have hardened like a paper mache type situation. And maybe it would have stayed that way. But if you saw something that looked like the shape of a body lying there, how could you say that the body is missing? You can't. So whatever it was, was either deflated all over the place. The wrapping still had some tenderness to them. However you want to say that. But it was obvious for Mary at the beginning that she saw the body is completely missing, and now we find John coming upon all these linen wrappings that have been put there. Very odd situation. What's number three that you know that he's resurrected? Number three way that you know that he's resurrected is because the clothes were left behind. Now this also tells you that the Shroud of Turin is not the image of Jesus Christ. Might make a lot of money off that, but it's not. How do you know that? Because that thing is still encased like that. This is not. The scriptures tell us no. How about the next part here? It says he did not go in, verse 6, and so Simon Peter also came. <laughs> Wait, right? And it's just like Peter, isn't it? John's like, what's going on here? Peter's like, Ugh! Because he's brash and we like him. I like him. Notice following him, he entered the tomb. And he saw, there's a word again, but it's a different Greek word. The linen wrappings lying there. In other words, 
He was examining the situation so closely as if he was trying to put together evidence for an investigation. He was taking a mental list of how everything was done, what everything looked at. He was coming upon a crime scene, making sure that his photographic memory was in place, taking in the entire scene. But here's the fourth reason why we know that was resurrection. Verse 7, and the face cloth. Everybody see that? The face cloth wasn't just like we think about a bandana or we think about our masks or something like that. The face cloth was actually something that would cover the face, but it also would wrap around the jaw in order to keep the mouth closed. So it was something that would be from here all the way back to probably here in order to stay on. And it was separate from the wrappings that were going on. The face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings. Okay, so here's a pile of what was around his body over here. And then just a little bit away sets this face cloth. But look what it says. But rolled up in a place by itself. Some of your translations are going to say folded up. Grave robbers don't come in to steal a body and strip it naked first because that's just awkward. You don't want to be carrying a naked dead guy away from a place. Anybody? Anybody? See, no volunteers. It's just not how we do it. Common sense says leave the body wrapped and let's go. No, the linens are there. And then the very polite robber decided that he was going to take a moment and experience Oregon. And said that, no. But isn't it just like Jesus to want to let them know something else is going on by leaving evidence behind? The face cloth was nicely folded to the side. What's up? Very excellent question. If they were coming with spices to finish the preparation of his body for proper burial, because they were hasty because of the feast, how in the world were they going to get in? They were going to ask for permission. That's what they were going to try to do. I don't know. The fact that there were so many guards there to watch it, they might not have had a problem with it. We don't know how heavy the seal was. We don't know if the entire rock was sealed. We know whenever they would seal an envelope at that time of some way or a letter in some way, it's just a dripping of wax and then a pressing with a signet ring. So it may have been where they had something larger like that and only one part where the rock met the cave was what they sealed. I don't know if it was like they took a hot glue gun and were doing the whole, you know, round of the, they could have, I don't know, electricity, whatever, but I don't know. But I think what they were going to do there is that she was going to ask for permission. And chances are, with the way that a Roman garrison would have carried themselves, they would have thought that a, that a, that a, a little band of women with, you know, paprika running around are going to be very unintrusive, possibly. I don't know. But that would be my explanation. Nobody's here to have fun with the scriptures today? <laughs> Come on! But is that your question? Well, let me ask you this. Lily, would you say that's a plausible explanation? Okay. I would hope so. 
But I, but I would also be of the opinion, I agree with you, but I'll also be of the opinion of, I would sit there and go, well, you know what? If it's sealed, why station a garrison? I mean, a garrison just isn't like two guys. I mean, it's like a, we, we've got this little fleet here that's setting up shop, you know, and they're standing watching ready because if they, and, and later on, the story that's passed along is, well, we'll give you some money. Just tell everybody you fell asleep. That's death in that culture. So how they could give that explanation Anybody that's worth their weight in gold would sit there and go, then how come you're still alive? I mean, that's the rebuttal for that. So, yeah, it all doesn't make sense because they're trying to cover it up with a lie. I think the plausible explanation would be they were going to ask for permission to get in. That's just me. You know what? Pray about it. Research it. Ask Josh McDowell. He seems to know everything in his book. I don't know. So verse 8. So the other disciple, that's the trim and fit John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered. And he saw, there's our word again, third Greek word used for saw here. Saw, he perceived it with clear understanding. He walked in and all the pieces fit into place. It was the light bulb aha moment. He saw and he what? He believed. In fact, the gospel of John is the gospel of belief. It's mentioned in here 99 times. Believe, 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 believe. John sees and he believes. Now there's something really weird about verse 9. It's very strange. For... There's our explanation. As yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now stop. If you've ever read through John's gospel, you'll know that he'll write for a little while about what's taking place, and then he'll take a little break. It's like he breaks the fourth wall, and it's like he's Ferris Bueller, and he's going to let everybody know about how bad it is he doesn't have a car. He's going to turn around here, and he's going to say, now, The problem is, at this time, we didn't know the Scripture. John's writing about himself. He and Peter were ignorant of the Old Testament. Now, that immediately gets my mind going. Wait a second. What's he talking about here? He pops in. He sees. He believes. Stone is gone. Door's open. Body's missing. Wrappings are here. Face cloth is all nice and neat and folded over here thing comes into play, there's a conclusion that he comes to that he has to insert for his reader to understand. As yet, they did not understand the scripture. What about the scripture? That he must rise again from the dead. You know what this is telling me? You can deduce the resurrection of the Messiah from the Old Testament. If you just know your Old Testament, you would have to come to a conclusion that resurrection is part of his existence. Does that sound like an easy thing? This is why we got to be critical thinkers about the scriptures. So my question was, uh, okay, if, if this is how... It's set up, if if this is what John's telling me, if John is writing probably around 95 to 100 AD, so he's looking back on these events some 60 to 70 years before, and he's chronicling it for people, 
And even at that moment, in his old age, he still feels the need to bring this up. That must be significant for you and me today. Because what's interesting is, they didn't need 1 Corinthians 15 to tell them about the resurrection. That came after. In fact, all of these books of the New Testament came after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord. So there's something about the Old Testament that was speaking to them, was knocking on their noggins that they needed to grasp. Now, we could go all over the Old Testament and look at this. We would say, well, you kind of see a picture of it whenever Abraham was called to give Isaac. And if you remember at the moment when it came time for Isaac to be sacrificed, God stopped him. And if you compare that with the commentary of that event that's given in Hebrews, it says that Abraham received back his son from the dead, figuratively speaking. We might see resurrection in a picture like that. But what's interesting is the picture that the Old Testament paints is more, is more. So I tried to find a place that would bring some of that together. And that's why we're going to turn to Acts 13. Turn over to Acts 13, over one book to the right. Chapter 13. There are a few different pockets where Paul is giving a defense of why he does what he does and why he suffers what he suffers. Because it's obviously got to have meaning behind it. People don't suffer for no reason. They've got to have something that they're after or their costs must be worth it for what's coming later out ahead. And so if you'll notice in chapter 13, let's start in verse 26 here. He's talking to Jews, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God. So if you're not a Jew, but you have a fear of Yahweh the Creator, this includes you. Look what he says. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent. Is it safe to say that when we talk about resurrection, we're talking about salvation? Yes. In fact, you find that is the predominant message all throughout the book of Acts, testifying to the resurrection. He says here, 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him, watch this, him capitalized Christ, they didn't recognize Christ, now watch this, nor the utterances of the what? Prophets. Where's that found? Old Testament, okay? So watch what Paul's doing here. They didn't recognize Jesus when he showed up on the scene. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 2, if they would have known who he was, they wouldn't have got anywhere near him. They would have never even thought to crucify him, knowing that he was God in the flesh. So notice, they're ignorant of who he is, and they're ignorant of what the Old Testament was telling you about these events and who he is. It says here, which are read every Sabbath, it's almost like Paul's rubbing it in, fulfilled these by condemning him. So even though you read about him every week, And even though they talk about who he is and what he would do, and even though it was painting a picture of all the events that would come to pass, just as it said in the Old Testament, they went ahead and condemned him to death and killed him, and in doing so, ended up fulfilling the scriptures that they were ignoring. Everybody see that? Okay. So it was prophetic. It says here, verse 28, And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Now we just read that, right? It says here, When they had carried out, here it is, all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. 
Now let's pause for a moment. God raised him from the dead. Is God going to do anything that is contrary to his word? Never. In fact, if anything, God is in the process of always seeking to fulfill his word so that it would prove so true that it would get our attention away from everything that is trying to blind us in this life. The resurrection is God's drawing a line in the sand. It's the difference maker. What other belief system in the world has a savior? Anybody? None. And it's not just they don't have a savior, they don't have a living savior. We got a lot of people that were reverenced or worshipped or idolized who died. People are still looking for Elvis. And let's be honest, you knew it was getting extreme when they said, well, if you just rearrange the letters in his name, it spells lives. I didn't come up with that. Don't frown on me. I know you guys are like, I'm out of here. That's not mine. That's actually something that's promoted. He's just in a nursing home in Georgia somewhere. I don't know. Even barbecue. Not sure. But we know of many people who have been highly revered, and when they died, it left the people with nowhere to go. They were dispersed. Or they fell into a cult-like status even more. And it ended up coming to nothing. How is it that Christianity has survived these 2,000 years? How is it that people still share the gospel today? Because it's true. Because God raised him from the dead. Because God said, I accept his payment of sin, and I'm going to show you that by bringing him back to life. God doesn't reward disobedience. So God raised him from the dead. Verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, from north to south. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Witnesses of what? His what? His resurrection. Let me tell you what we saw. Now how do we know that? He gathered everybody on the mountain. And he gave them the commission, go make disciples of all nations. There were over 500 people at that time witnessing the resurrected Christ. That's a lot of people to vouch for you. So then he says here, verse 32, and we preach to you the good news of the, what's that word? Promise. The promise that he raised, sorry, forgive me, made to the fathers. Where's this promise found? Uses the word father, so we're talking about what? Old Testament. Does everybody see? Paul's Bible was the first 39 books. We're drawing off of this. Now Paul's going to show us how this works. And my eyes are so bad, I'm coming up here. So here he goes. Verse 33 that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. Everybody see the word fulfilled? Everybody see raised up Jesus. Put those together. The Old Testament could not be considered complete or trustworthy if Jesus had stayed dead. He was a crusader who taught a lot of really great things, but in the end, he just couldn't deliver. 
God was not going to let it stop there. So notice, he raised him up from the dead. He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now you say, okay, I don't get it. How many people don't get it? I mean, because here's what he does. Everybody stick with me here, okay? Just because I can't see you right now. Doesn't mean that God can't. Paul wants to say God made us a promise. God made you a promise. In fact, he's talking to Jews who would have a knowledge of the Old Testament, and he's going to say, I know that you may be skeptical of this situation, but I'm here to tell you about salvation, and this salvation is rooted in a promise that God made, and he made it in the Old Testament, and I'm going to prove it to you. So he's fulfilling what he said, and he raised Jesus from the dead. He's alive. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, right, Paul. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And let me prove it to you. And here's the first example that he gives. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Does that convince you of the resurrection of Jesus? No. Why? Well, it doesn't say anything about resurrection, does it? It doesn't really prove the point of anything. It uses the word son. That's kind of interesting in the Old Testament. But what's interesting is this comes from Psalm chapter 2. And Psalm chapter 2 is known as a messianic psalm. So it was a psalm that was written by David at that time that was purposely forecasting the idea of a messiah. And you might be familiar with this. Why do the nations rage against you? Why do they devise plans to come against the creator of all things? It says he scoffs at them. He laughs at them. It's almost like, ha, ha, that kind of attitude. And why is that? Because the creator has a son. And this son is the king. And he's not just the king. Let's see if you remember from these past couple of weeks we've been going through this. He's not just a king, he's also a what? He's also a priest. See, now you got trouble. Not just royalty, but he's going to religiously get Right? Here's what he's saying. Look at it closely with me. You are my son. Everybody see that? He's not just recognized as a king in this psalm. Today, I have begotten you. If you wouldn't mind, guys, in the back, bring up Psalm 2 there, the Psalm 2 passage. Look up on the screen with me. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. When does Jesus Christ receive the inheritance of the nations? What's that? No. What's that? When he comes to bring in the kingdom, and then all nations will come under his kingship, yes? Let me ask you a question. Do you have to be alive for that to happen if you're Jesus? You do, don't you? Everybody's like, whoa. Okay, your Bill and Ted moment. Everybody calm down, right? In order for God to make any promise, that has anything to do with Jesus beyond him taking his last breath has to be one where he's alive. Otherwise, God would be a liar, wouldn't he? How can a dead Messiah fulfill anything? He can't. In fact, here's what's interesting. 
I will give you the nations as your inheritance. You'll rule over everything. The very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. He will judge righteously. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Like clay pots. You'll just dash them to bits. Because he comes to a righteous judge. Now, what else is interesting about this? You compare this verse with the rest of how it's used in the New Testament. Why is my mic? If you compare this, I'm excited, man. If you compare this to the book of Hebrews, you find in chapter 1 and chapter 5, this is quoted. And why is it quoted again and again? It's quoted again and again and because Hebrews is trying to prove how Jesus is a perfect priest. And remember, he died, and his blood is the sacrifice, right? But you still need a priest to offer the sacrifice. And so God raises him from the dead so that he can be the living priest in order to bring the offering before the Lord. So the reason why Paul quotes this first one, and speaking to Jews, they would have had this Old Testament mindset. They understood the context of these situations. They said, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because the way we understand it, in order to have an eternal king, he's got to be alive first. That's got to happen. So that's how God was early on letting you know. My son, when I install him and give him inheritance over all the nations, and he rules over everything, he has to be alive to do so. It sounds elementary when we say it. But for them, it's starting to click, and they're starting to recognize, okay, wait a second. Paul might not be lying to us, because that makes sense. Here's the second one it comes to. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead no longer to return to decay. Now notice he brings it up again. If you want to know more in the Old Testament about no longer to return to decay, he raised him up. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now you might say, okay, wait a second. That's not very convincing for resurrection either because it doesn't say anything about being raised from the dead. How in the world should we understand that one? If you would bring up Isaiah 55, one through three. I always thought this verse was funny because it started with the word ho. He says, ho! And here's the reason why they would write that in the Hebrew is because essentially Isaiah is doing this. He wants to get everybody's attention. He's, he's Lucy shaking Charlie Brown to where he has three eyeballs rolling around. Ho! Right? He's excited too. Bet his mic didn't go out. Everyone who thirsts, here's what he says, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You think they could go go good over at Walmart? No. But notice what he's saying. Take of abundance for you. It costs you nothing. This is probably why John alludes to this in the very last chapter of Revelation when he's wrapping it up. Come to Jesus because it's free and you get everything wonderful in return. He's done it all. He offers it freely. It costs you nothing. Buy water. It won't cost you a dime. But come get it. So he says here, why do you spend money for what's not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Here it is where he's quoting this. It's a broken quote. Verse three. He says, incline your ear and come to me. 
listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. So this is a plea of God to the people, come into this agreement with me that will never go away. It's everlasting. Now, look back at Acts 13 here that you have. Let's read 34 again. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. In order for you to have an eternal covenant with someone, you have to have someone that's there to provide the means of the covenant. You've got to have somebody who you're into the agreement with that is offering that forward, and they're able to... One of the greatest problems we have about contracts is when somebody dies, you don't get your money. Yes? Anybody been on that in Not fun. And so you have to go through all kinds of legal proceedings in order to make that happen. However, if the one who guarantees your contract is enduring forever, you don't have a problem with receiving the benefits. This is one of the reasons why when you believe in Jesus Christ, he gives you eternal life. Why? Because he brings you into a forever unbreakable relationship with his son. He wants you to experience these benefits. Well, not only are we on the receiving end, he is eternally on the giving end. So when it says here, I will give you the holy and sure, trustworthy blessings of David, the idea here is the fact that when he made this contract with David and said, there will be somebody from your line that will sit on the throne forever, your king must be eternal in order to be forever. Does everybody see that? So not only do we have a promise of a forever priest, and not only is there a promise in the Old Testament of a forever king, in order for them to be forever, they cannot die. Now see, this is the problem with Jesus. If he died and they buried him, you couldn't just leave it at that. Why? Because it would leave the scriptures undone and unfulfilled. God raised him from the grave, not to just prove that he accepted his sacrifice, not to just prove that his profound love for people. He raised it so that he would never be seen as a liar because everything that he has spoken about the future is true. See, we just need to have eyes to see the eternal nature, the forward nature of his priesthood and his kingdom. Now look here, verse 35. Here's the third one. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Some of your translations say to see corruption. In other words, he's not going to stinketh, is what it gets at. He was raised on the third day, yes? How long did he wait till he went to see Lazarus' tomb? Four. Why? Because he would have been stinky by then and starting to decay. So notice here, about raising on the third day, he's proving a point here. Decay never set in on his body. It never became corrupted. And the only way that you take a dead person and you don't have them become corrupted is you better raise them before they begin to decay. Everybody see that? You need to nuke that meat and eat it before it molds. As a single, as a single guy, I'm curious just real quick. As a single guy, how many of you would cook stuff that was borderline in the microwave. Okay. Laverne, yes. You're, you're laughing because you know. And however many weeks it was in there, you just add a minute, right? You know that. I told my wife that, and she looked at me like, how are you still alive? You know? Like, I cooked it for eight minutes. I don't know. You know? Eventually, all the green burns away. But 
Three days in, if he hit the fourth day, the body is now corrupted. Now here's one thing to remember. When Jesus raised from the grave, it was the same body, wasn't it? It was a bodily resurrection. In fact, whenever Thomas is doubting, doesn't he say, come put your fingers in the nail holes. That had to be weird. But then it got weirder. Come put your hand in my side. What? But notice that Jesus was willing to go to those links. Believe. There's no reason why you shouldn't believe. Because he still had that body. Corrupted, still wounded, but uncorrupted. Now here's what's interesting. David is the one who wrote that psalm, verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, did what? Fell asleep, meaning he died. In other words, David did everything that God wanted him to do in his life, and that's what constituted the end of his life, and that's when he died. Now, save heinous sin going on in our lives, that's exactly what happens to every single one of us here. We serve out the purpose of God with our life, and when we're done, we're done. So if David wrote this about not seeing decay, and wait a second, David died, which means David what? Decayed, right? He's all gooey and sticky and gross. Everybody with me? He decayed. So if he wrote this, is David a liar or was he writing about somebody else? See, when David wrote this, it was prophetic. It wasn't. He's not introspective here. It's prophetic. He says here, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, pay attention, guys, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Because we've got three Old Testament instances that our Savior must be eternal as priest, as king, and as the fulfillment of everything that was ever promised to David. We have God's word on it. Know this, with those facts in place, he comes forward and he offers one thing, forgiveness of sins. It's been proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who, what? That didn't sound too exciting. Through him, through Jesus, everyone who what? Believes. Believes. Is that consistent with John? In fact, it's consistent through the whole Bible. The one who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. In other words, when God raised him from the dead, God said, my priest needs to offer his work. My king still needs to sit on the throne and rule. Right now, he's ascended to the right hand of God, and he is awaiting the opportunity when all of his enemies are placed under his footstool. Do you realize that if you're ever angry for righteous purposes, everything that you are mad at one day will be brought into complete submission underneath Jesus Christ? Everything that you find detestable will put under him, and he will reign supreme over it. In other words, he had to live so that he could reign. That's the point. In fact, that's the point of history. The point of all history is that God has the right to rule, that we are not kings in our own respect, that he's more that he wants to do, that he wants to make sure that anything that would ever hinder you from walking with him fully, hand in hand, has been removed out of the way. That every barricade that has been placed up has been torn down. In fact, the only thing that keeps us from God is ourselves. 
And it's found in the form of one thing. It's called unbelief. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died a death he did not deserve. It was agonizing. And he had the mercy on the cross to look down at people who were spitting on him and rolling dice for his garments and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clue. They're ignorant. And yet stumbling upon a tomb with one of his closest friends, John comes to this incredible realization. I didn't know everything the scriptures had to say about this either. Because if I would just look at the promise that God made, he has to live. He has to live in order for God to be true. He has to live in order for this throne to be occupied. He has to live in order for the sacrifice for sins to be applied in my stead. This is why Paul wraps this up. We have a message, a message of salvation. Salvation means to be rescued or to be delivered. And what is that message? Your sins have been completely forgiven. All your debts have been completely paid. And God made sure that not just your now, but your forever would be sealed up in one way and one way only. He took his son who gave everything and did not deserve to die. And he raised him up from the grave because he will rule supreme. He will come back. He will dash all opposition and he will sit down on his throne. Let me ask you a question. Where will you be when that happens? Will you be with him or against him? You see, I think about all the reasons why people give. They won't come to Jesus. He might ask me to give up something. He's not going to ask you to give it up to be saved. He will ask you to give it up because he wants you to know him more. But you don't have to give up anything to be saved. Well, this is really near and dear to me. I don't know how I could part with it. Is it eternal? I mean, isn't that the really the point of the resurrection? The fact that when Jesus Christ was raised, he never dies again. He is forever. He is the only lasting thing. We're even told at the end of Revelation, Heaven and earth pass away. Everything that we see out these windows right now one day will burn up and be gone. And the only thing that's going to be mattering at that point was your response to Jesus Christ while on earth. Have you believed in Christ? Have you heard that he died for your sins and raised from the grave? I hope you have now. But the question is, is do you have a firm conviction that it's true? Have you believed it? If you believe it for yourself, you should. He died for you. My sins, your sins, were the ones that needed forgiving. Guess what? Jesus did that because we couldn't. So today is not a gloom and doom, sad, oh my gosh, I'm such a sinner. Yeah, you are, but get past yourself for a second. Jesus is great. Jesus is alive. Jesus walks with us every day if we want to walk with him. Jesus supplied what we would need forever. There's nothing you have to do to get acceptance with him. There's no means you have to perform. Whatever guilt motivates you to do things, that's of your own doing. I get it. We're selfish. We're vindictive. We're prideful. We're manipulators. We're skilled at the art of sin. I get it. You know what? Even knowing that, Jesus looked past it and still died. Looked past it. He knows us. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ, ask yourself why. Ask yourself why.
Let's pray. Thank you, God, that your mercy is great. Thank you that your word is deep. That it's not intimidating for you to speak about eternal things. And that the piles and piles of sin that we have are not intimidating for you to take care of. It's like a speck of dust. You are powerful. You are awesome. And the fact that you're motivated by your love to save people, that's just incredible. Undeserving, absolutely. But that can never stop your grace. Thank you, God, that you love us to the uttermost, not just now, not just to save us now, but for eternity. Once we believe in you, we're saved forever. Nothing can ever take that away. We thank you that it's all based on Christ. It's all him being the foundation. It's all his blood being the perfect payment. It's the pronunciation. It is paid in full. And it's the fact that the Old Testament constantly pointed in this direction time and time and time again. God, if we don't have eyes to see, please remove the blinders. For hanging out with people today and they don't know Christ, this is a message worth sharing. Because many people walk in guilt and depression because of their sins. Jesus has taken care of all of that. He's paid it in full. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name, amen.